بسم الرحمن الرحیم الحمد للہ رب العالمین وسلاۃ وسلام علیہ رسول اللہ صلی اللہ علیہ وسلم السلام علیکم ورحمۃ اللہ وبرکاتہ ویلکم ٹو ایپیسوڈ فائیو آف دا ٹوکنگ دین پوڈ کاسٹ بوٹ یو بائی وائس آف دا امر ٹیم آئی ایم یو ہوس ماجد اینڈ ٹوڈے مائی ریگولر سائڈ کک برادر راش اینڈ وی ہیو گیسٹ برادر ماز آئی ہوپ ان شاء اللہ تعالیٰ رمضان از گوئنگ ول فار یور اینڈ ٹین ڈیز have gone well on recording this anyway and inshallah you're making the most of it today's topic is one which is and should be very close to every every muslim's heart today we're going to talk about a place uh, where the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam actually led the the anbiya in salah and we're talking about palestine al-quds and al-qasa and today we're going to speak about an event that occurred 71 years ago and link it to a current the current agenda of the west and we're talking about the al-naqba which we uh, translate as the catastrophe which happened 71 years ago when the uh, palestinians were driven out um almost 750,000 palestinian muslims were driven out by the uh, the zionist israelis and also we're going to speak about actually which is probably more important the current deal of the century which you may have seen on the news the plan that the 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 west have for settling the issue of palestine um so inshallah ta'ala to start off the discussion brothers it may be worth speaking about the naqba a bit because it may well be that some people some muslims are not aware of the naqba or don't know too many details so inshallah let's start discussing on this this topic first yeah definitely a topic that muslims need to be very much aware of Um, I think most people do know a little bit at least about the Nakba and about what happened like 71 years ago because you regularly get maybe every year now reminders what happened, how many Palestinians, how many Muslims were killed on that occasion. You know, tens of thousands of Muslims were killed. I think nearly 20,000 Muslims were killed. Um, yeah. 750,000, as you said, were displaced. But one thing, even before we go into more detail about the Nakba, I think... first and foremost we need to go maybe three decades even before that three decades before the nakba was in 1917 was the declaration the balfour declaration yeah and this is where that after the you know during the first world war it was decided that the place of palestine was going to be given as a homeland for the jewish people And yes again we probably know a little bit about this as well because there was a cent- the centenary was two years ago so there was a lot of promotion about it to the extent that Britain had um, you know um, Netanyahu came to Britain Britain hosted him really were very proud about their involvement in setting up this declaration so we ha- we have all of those events but it's very important to look at the declaration because this is what set the groundwork for the nakba happening 330 30 years after that or th- 30 plus years it's after that it's interesting you mentioned the balfour declaration 1917 because a lot of times when people think about israel they think about the, the holocaust but here this is 1917 where the british were making plans of actually giving away the the land to the jews and something that's also important as well is um, even after world war 1 or when the uh, british took over palestine 
And subhanAllah, you know, even before we see that, even at the time of the Ottoman Caliphate, when uh, the Zionists were, they approached the Khalif Abdul Hamid II and they wanted to purchase this land. And um, what was his response? You know, that, uh, you know, until he is alive, until the, the Islamic State is there, you know, they will never get Palestine. Yeah, he recognized this was something that the Muslims had fought for, the Muslims had spilled blood for in order to, you know, this holy land to be un- under their control. And this was really difficult for them. And again, he recognized it wasn't his to give away. Yeah, and considering the significance of Al-Quds in the Quran, the Masjid Al-Aqsa being the third holiest mosque, um, you know, uh, for Muslims and for the Ummah, it's not something which the Muslims can ever think about uh, giving away. But um, as you rightly mentioned, um, although the Holocaust is used as a means by which to justify the existence of Israel, I mean, I was talking to someone recently who saying, well, don't you think the Jews had a right to choose their homeland, um, especially after what had happened to them? But it wasn't, uh, and I had to explain, it wasn't a choice for the Jews. It was actually a choice, a decision already made by the colonialists, by the British, as part of their post-Ottoman Islamic State plans in order to implant this entity in the heart of the uh, Muslim world for the objective of keeping the Muslims preoccupied into believing that the cause of all the problems that they were going to have as a result of the end of the Islamic State's control of that region and the end of the Islamic State and the division of these lands into these new statelets, uh, uh, thanks to Sykes-Picot. Um, it was all designed to make the Muslims believe that Israel was the cause of all their problems. So until today, they would not think that Israel was a symptom of the absence of the Islamic State, but rather they would see Israel as the root cause and hence be diverted from working to resume and re-establish the Islamic State, which they'd only lost um, uh, just a couple of decades earlier. Yeah, I think the, symp- the sympathies that arrive there is because people don't look at some of the historical quotes and contexts. Even when General Allenby went into that place, he said, the wars of the Crusades are now complete. So he recognised, or the Brits recognised, that this was linked back to the crusade- Crusades. Equally, there's one quote that, again, the, difficult to find the reference to this one, but there's another one which is very clear, and I'll mention it. But that first quote about, you know, implanting a foreign entity within the Muslim lands, this was apparently also said by Lord Curzon to say that we need to implant this um, entity so that from this location, strategically, we can control the region. But even if that kind of quote is question the quote that he act- he also made was we must put an end to anything which brings about islamic unity between the sons of the muslims the situation now is that turkey is dead and will never rise again because we have destroyed its moral strength the caliphate and islam so it's very obvious for all of those people who argue oh the jewish people needed somewhere to live it's very obvious that that wasn't behind or that wasn't the key design around why that location was chosen for them actually you know the uh, it wasn't that the quote i think is is from campbell uh, campbell bannerman bannerman oh, report right, yeah. and actually i did a bit of research on this and uh, um there was one arab historian who actually uh, traveled to britain to find uh, the uh, reference for this and what he was saying is that wherever he went he couldn't find it but then his analysis at the end was that it may well be that they didn't want this to be found but on top of that he said 
the reality is whether it was said or not what actually was uh, the reality of what was said the actions. We, we the actions is we see exactly that and in regards to you mentioned the to do with the crusades and and, and this is why sometimes you know when you get muslims who um, are even for example the centenary they are like protesting to the british government to help them and and you know what they don't realize is the fact that the the origins of the problem came from them because like you mentioned about the uh, general allenby at that time it wasn't just him just the actual british department of information used to use the word crusade as well and um, when uh, palestine was taken in the headline in uh, uh, the punch a newspaper said declared that the last crusade um has been has been won and, and it had a picture of uh, richard the lionheart saying my dream has come true so we see that you know the uh, the agenda was quite clear in regards to what the plan was and uh, and what we see then is the fact that originally the jews started to uh, migrate to that land because there was only 3% or so jews there in the in the first place at that point and then gradually over 3% at the beginning and then gradually over i think up until 1935 it increased to 27% so gradually they were just the british facilitated the jews being brought from all over the world into into the muslim land and, and that's because of, and that's because the british were occupying palestine mm. since 1917 um when they considered it um, as uh, their mandate Mandate was a euphemism used to describe the colonies of the British and the yeah. French, um, especially those territories that they had occupied um, from the Islamic State. So, um, so yeah, so the British uh, had a project and were facilitating Jewish migration to Palestine, arming them and then um, um, uh, arm them and facilitate them to actually lead to the Nakba. Um, um, and, and the word displacement is actually used by the Western media to to kind of take away the real criminal element of it. It actually was seizing people's homes and stealing people's homes and lands and expelling them uh, from and throwing them out, evicting them from their own houses and then moving in. Um, so under the pretext that, uh, well, there was no pretext at the time, the justification uh, for... Uh, this came later uh, with the Holocaust uh, or the alleged Holocaust, but prior to that, it was clearly a colonial project. I mean, we, we know about the Deir Yassin massacre, and at this time, there's a lot of reports, you know, that the Palestinians left their homes them, themselves. But the reality is, is that you know these uh, terrorists, Jewish terrorists, were armed by the British, and they were going around and and you know uh, carrying out massacres. So when Muslim normal civilians left. You know, and when they came back to realize that their whole village had been raised and there was absolutely nothing there, you know, this is what was happening. So, you know, we spoke a bit about the British. So, what would be interesting, I think, uh, to to uh, highlight is that where did the where did the change uh, where did the shift between the British to the Americans? Because right now we can see it's the Americans that are supporting the Israelis and and actually propping it up. So where did the change happen from the British, who originally had all this plan, they set up the, the, the Zionist state in a sense, um, but now we see that America is, the, is running the show in, in regards to that area, in that region. So what, what happened there? Actually, it was right from the start. Uh, the, um, um, the Americans, when they set up the United Nations, 
and Israel was created as a result of the UN partition plan. And that's what you have to remember. So the Americans have been in it from the start. So if we understand the UN is the US, it was set up by the Americans in order to consolidate their uh, world order after the Second World War. It was the United Nations that, in, a, in effect, that legitimized Israel's existence and declared it as a legitimate state and welcomed it as a member to this body, uh, as a new nation to the world. So the American sport's been there right from the start. I suppose the only thing to add to that is that prior to that, though, it was World War Two when after after World War Two, the in, as, when the superpower became America and when the battle became more about between you know between America and the Soviets, there was a period of time I think whereby the U.S. probably didn't see quite as clearly as the Britain Britain had seen prior to that the significance of that location and the significance in terms of being able to utilize it against against the Muslims against the Arab nations that were nearby. But it, will, it probably didn't, you know, that situation probably didn't stand for very long because the US quite quickly, as, as early as like 48 and then further on in 57, realised that what we need to do is Israel's going to play a, a major base for us in the region. And, you know, if we supply them, if we fund them, if we keep them alive, and we can talk a little bit about, you know, what is sustaining Israel being such a, a small place with a small population creating so many problems... But actually, there was a period of time where whilst Britain was the superpower and they recognised that, and as we saw with the Crusades and with the comments that they made, that they recognised the significance of that location. But this then transferred over to the US when they became the superpower and they recognised equally that we need to utilise this location because of its strategic importance and its importance from a from point of view of a religious standpoint for the for the Muslims and for the Jews. Because if you, you you mentioned the 1947 US uh, partition plan, the UN partition plan, shall I say, uh, and and just by 1948, the 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 Israelis, uh, the Zionists, had occupied 78 percent of the land. <laughs> and that even the UN's kind of agreed at 50 something percent, 56 percent, but that 56%. was 56 percent, 56 percent, and then they they went and took a lot more. And obviously, as we know, they continue to take more up until now. To the extent there's that quote from, I think, one of the PLO Karazi guy, I think his name was, he said that it's like doing a negotiation, like you're deciding who wants the, a piece of the pizza whilst the other person is continuing to eat the pizza. There's like a good analogy that was made because they're continuing to take more and more of the land regardless of the fact that, you know, even that we don't recognise the UN decision of 56% but it's nowhere near that it's a lot more than that now so you know some some may ask that at this time um, what was the reaction of the the Arab countries uh, the the sort of monarch, monarchies that were around that land so you had Egypt you had uh, Jordan these areas uh, Syria even you know what was the reaction because at the end of the day these states would have had armies um, so whilst the Nakba was going on what was the response of the Muslims in the in the area? Were they were they just did they just allow it to happen, or were they stopped from trying to do something? Well, the Muslim world was naturally up in arms about it. They were um, infuriated uh, with the events that were taking place um, and the seizure of uh, Palestine uh, taking place by the Jews, aided by the British. Um, 
But what was the response of the states? You have to remember, these states were created by the British after the end of the Ottoman Islamic State uh, through Sykes-Picot. So all the rulers in there, so Abdulaziz bin Saud in Saudi Arabia, uh, all the regimes in the area, the Hashemite Kingdom um, of King Abdullah uh, in Jordan, you found that um, all these regimes, they were fully collaborating with their colonial masters because what was their common... It was the British who had put them in power exactly. and exactly. rulers such as Abdulaziz bin Saud had accepted an Israeli state right from the start. So although in 1948 there was a, an, a, allegedly a, an, a, a war to a war against Israel, what they call an Arab-Israeli war, mm. it wasn't actually a real war because the the newly appointed rulers of the uh, Middle East, they just conducted a war by which they had to satisfy their populations and they, had, they made an attempt. Yeah, and they had certain of their own kind of almost nationalistic goals that they also wanted to satisfy rather than really helping the Palestinians themselves in their plight. Yeah, so the main point, the main message was to make the Muslims believe that they had made an attempt to resist the occupation and to fight Israel, but they couldn't succeed. And you actually find, find that these staged wars continued all the way until recent years. So in 1948, the staged war was followed by the 1967 Six-Day War, as if a population of 3 million could defeat 1 billion, you know, an Ummah of over 1 billion within six days. And we're not talking about any old Ummah, you're talking about the Islamic Ummah being defeated by the Jews, who Allah describes with certain characteristics in the Quran. And they're certainly not people of war, you know, historically. You know, they are people of money and people who have other intentions They are and, and cowards, people who never fought war. This is the same nation that said to Musa salam, to their uh, prophet, messenger, you go and fight for the promised land, you and your Lord, you know, and they wouldn't want to even, you know, follow battle you know, behind their own messenger. So, um, so the staged war of 1967 was a six-day war, again, with the same objective to make the Muslims believe that they were defeated and they can't uh, defeat Israel. In 1973, it was October and it was the month of Ramadan, as it is now. The spirits were high and the Egyptian army was not far from Tel Aviv. Uh, but in fact, it was there. It was again the orders to retreat and the Egyptian air force was being sent in to halt the advancement of the uh, Egyptian army to Tel Aviv because Israel was about to collapse. Again, this was to reinforce in the minds of the Muslims that the uh, the uh, the Muslims had done everything they possibly could. Israel was invincible, and the and the Jews actually start believing this David and Goliath narrative, narrative yeah. that they were invincible. But the reality was this was all part of the conspiracy to permanently hand over. Palestine to the Jews, which is which has now culminated into what we're seeing today, which is what's known as the deal of the century. So all of these wars were part of that conspiracy uh, in order to surrender Palestine to the Jews on a permanent basis. There's a report I was reading earlier, and um, there was some. Uh, uh, there's one that actually uh, Jamal Abdul Nasser at that time. What he what actually from his from his memoirs and what he said was that the Egyptian government at that time, they had actually weakened the attack against the Zionists, uh, 
and uh, the prime minister actually instead of using the existing military units he sent out an army of volunteers and basically when when these guys went, got to the the front line what they saw was chaos where these israelis with these westernized weapons were basically fighting the palestinians with, you know with sort of dated weapons weaponry so you know it was set up in a way that uh, and that's why sometimes when when people say that the the rulers in that land or the the real idf the real israeli defense force from day one we can see that these puppets were there to actually allow a for the state to be born the st the israeli state but also to actually keep it keep it alive because as maz said the the Muslims were you know they were uh, yeah open arms they were furious and I remember speaking to many Egyptians when I was in Egypt and uh, you know the the sad thing is that they felt that the the nineteen seventy three war was something which they had they had won because they had taken Sinai back and then when you know speaking about well why didn't they carry on and even they appreciated that they could have carried on and taken the the rest. But they said, well, you know, uh, we were ordered to, that's it, we've achieved our objectives. And, you know, so we see that these people from day one were there designed to actually keep this this place, this 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 little little uh, uh, military outpost of the West in, in place. Even to the extent that if people were a little bit confused at the time as to how is it possible that, you know, this t tiny population, this tiny area can defeat so many, you know, all of these Muslim neighboring countries, we can see from looking at more recent history and since then how the many kind of Muslim leaders have been in terms of they all of them have facilitated the existence of Israel. All of them have facilitated, you know, the issues that the Ummah is facing today and not helped rectify them. So actually, if they haven't helped up until today, what did we expect from them back then? Even to the extent that we know the likes of Sharif Hussein had already, you know, con um, collaborated with the British. So were we expecting any different from from his son? So we weren't. So to be fair, Muslims, maybe we should have been more aware of these things from the beginning, but certainly by now we should be aware of them. Yeah, of course. I mean, we can see, like you mentioned, that the example you gave about the pizza, we can see that uh, you know from uh, from 1917 onwards, we see that uh, the the entire land almost has been taken away, and uh, you know I think it's the arrogance of the Jews because um, their plan is for a greater Israel, and actually to be honest, with you, it doesn't just stop with the with what we call Palestine, so which leads us up to the issue of um, the deal of the century, because this is the plan now. If it wasn't but if the situation wasn't wasn't bad as it is, if the 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 situation of the people in Gaza wasn't as bad as it is, you know, and the way the the Muslims in West Bank are treated, you know, the the plan of deal of the century is there really to wipe away the memory of anything called Palestine in, in real sense. So inshallah ta'ala, it'd be good if we went through some of the details of the deal of the century, because this is something which maybe some Muslims know. And some don't, but the reality is, is that you know the implications of this deal. Every Muslim needs to be aware of this, so that we can work to expose this plan. So, brothers. So yeah, um, the deal of the century. Uh, we actually uh, reveal this last year um, when it was hardly known, and now it is uh, 
uh, coming a lot more to the fore and uh, there is some discussion about it. Uh, Gerard Kushner, um, Trump's uh, son-in-law and, and advisor, who's a major player, mm-hmm. along with Greenblatt, Jason Greenblatt, um, another one of his advisors, uh, who are the key players in implementing this deal of the century. Kushner just said uh, not too long ago, just before Ramadan actually, he said, we are going to reveal the details of the detail of the uh, of the deal of the century after Ramadan. And there have been some leaks uh, since. However, in reality, even though they are giving the impression that the deal of the century is going to be unveiled, in reality, it's already in process of being implemented. So what is the deal of the century? The deal of the century is America's plan. It's part of the Greater Middle East Initiative, which we can touch on later on and how it relates to that. But it's, uh, it's part of America's plan to impose a settlement on the Palestinian issue within the context of a regional framework. So it ties in Jordan, Syria, Egypt, and it's facilitated by America's chief uh, pro-Israeli lobby, which is the Saudi regime and the UAE regime uh, currently, in which um, the end result is a one-state solution with Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. And the reason why I say this is already underway, you may recall that as soon as Trump was elected, um, in a very early press conference, when he was asked about his thoughts for the um, uh, for the uh, Palestinian question, he said he like he prefers the one-state solution. He actually let it slip very early on in that December uh, 2017, I believe it was. He followed it up quickly with uh, or a two-state solution, whatever the parties prefer. But he actually let it slip very early on what the American plan was, and therefore it was natural that after that they were going to. Uh, move the embassy, which they did. So they announced the uh, movement of the embassy uh, to of the U.S. embassy to um, uh, to Jerusalem. Um, they cut the uh, funding for the United Nations Relief and Works Agencies, which was set up in order to cater for the refugees, because of the deal of the century cancels the right of return. So the Palestinian refugees are no longer deemed as refugees. Hence the reason why there was a leak uh, that an, in, of an American report in which they said, and a bill was also introduced um, last year in Congress, which recognized only 40,000 remaining refugees from the original uh, expulsion, from the original... Uh, Four Nakba. or five million from the original... Yeah, from Well, there's actually five and a half million refugees if you consider... Well, the descendants of the 700,000 that were originally expelled. And historically, it's always accepted that refugees uh, is, a, is, a, is a continued status. So people who were expelled from their homes are refugees. Their children and their grandchildren will also be refugees. refugees. America is in the process of cancelling out their refugee status. And they are pressurising the regimes in the region, especially Jordan, um, which they successfully actually did. Um, to cancel out the uh, refugee status of the two million Palestinians living in Jordan. They, uh, they got uh, uh, Saudi uh, and the UAE to cut their aid to uh, Jordan. Even the, uh, when the Saudis said that uh, you have to have an official passport, a full passport, to be able to come to uh, Umrah. Yeah, so they, so they pressurised the Jordanian regime by 
creating uh, those riots which were taking place last year. You may remember the entire Jordanian government resigned because of the uh, economic uh, hardships. Um, so King Abdullah was then forced to go back on America's plan. And, um, um, and, and you're right, uh, this, it was the Saudis who introduced uh, last Hajj that Palestinian refugees needed a proper uh, document with a national, national ID. ID. National to have ID. a national ID means that you're actually a citizen of a state. So whereas previously Palestinian refugees were traveling to Hajj on a temporary Jordanian passport, now they were required to apply for uh, a PA um, passport with a national ID, a full ID, which, which had other implications. It meant that those residents of East Jerusalem, and bear in mind, deal of the century includes annexing East Jerusalem um, and making it part of Israel, annexing all the settlements in the West Bank and large parts of the West Bank and incorporating that into Israel. Now, if um, if Palestinians are traveling with a, um, with a proper um, passport type document with a national ID uh, of the Palestinian Authority, from East Jerusalem, um, then that means that in effect have dual citizenship. So they have dual citizenship of Jordan as well as East Jerusalem or of the West Bank and East Jerusalem. Those nationals with dual citizenship, Israel uses that as a pretext to cancel their residency, which then they use to uh, force residents, Muslims residents of East um, Jerusalem out uh, of Jerusalem altogether as a means of further consolidating their occupation. So you can see how all the regimes were, especially the Saudi regime, being a major facilitator of this. Um, so, so the one-state solution then results in uh, one uh, Israeli state with the whole of Jerusalem as its capital, large parts of the West Bank annexed to it, and then the Palestinians uh, of uh, Gaza all being removed and resettled in the Sinai, in which America is planning the construction of massive cities with its own industrial space, its airport, uh, its own airport, seaport, um, in order to bribe the Palestinians into accepting to become residents of Sinai. And, uh, and we know there were recent reports leaked of how um, Mohammed bin Salman offered 10 billion dollars to uh, Abbas in order to accept the deal of the century. So um, so when Jared Kushner says there's a nice surprise on the way after mm. Ramadan, it's most likely going to be a massive economic package where, which the Saudis and the UAE, primarily these two states, are going to fund in order to force the Palestinians to, to accept the deal of the century. Um, but obviously it's had a backlash from the Palestinian Authority because it means all their services and their efforts to establish a Palestinian state on 22% of the land, as dictated by Oslo, that goes out of the window. And not only does it go out of the window, these guys will go down in history as having Sold out uh, abandoned the, the Palestinian cause totally, even though they had when they accepted Oslo, in effect. But here, they can't really... And that's the reason why uh, Abbas described it as the slap of the century. So the fact there's even aversion from their own agents 
to this deal shows you what this yeah. uh, what the planned deal is. And that's even not to add the fact that it's, it can't even really be a state. They can't have an, their own army. They can't have their own navy. They can have a very lightly armed kind of police force, and then they have to pay the the Israelis in order to protect them from foreign aggression. You know who is the biggest aggressor to the Palestinians and the Muslims in the region than the Israelis themselves? What kind of crazy idea is this to actually ask your oppressors to protect you and then pay for it so this is the deal that's on the table but like you were saying the deal has already been is being worked on in the background it's not something that they're going to present and go okay is it accepted then let's work on it it's firstly it's being worked on even as Jared Kushner has been over to um, see King Abdullah and stuff like that off the back of some of the um, there was kind of a lot of protests and things happening in in Jordan so off the back of that, it's been worked on in the background, but also it's going to be presented as this is your only solution. And if you don't accept it, then America themselves are saying that they're going to physically go against, you know, they're saying they're going to wage war against the likes of um, Hamas and Islamic Jihad that because they have to accept this deal because it's the only deal on the table. And, and, and when Kushner was asked, well, do you think this will be acceptable, this mm. deal? And uh, recently, and he said, no, there will be an emotional reaction, mm. but in the long term, yeah. it will work yeah. out. The, so the whole point is, is that they're hoping that by turning the uh, Palestinian struggle from a political struggle, a struggle against occupation, to a humanitarian and economic struggle, which is what they've been doing. So why has Israel, if you think about it now, in recent years, Israel has been continuously attacking Gaza and reducing it to rubble destroying their water systems, their, their power stations, the infrastructure there, the hospitals, the schools. Why is Israel continuously striking uh, Gaza in recent years? To make it uninhabitable. You know, so they put a, they put a siege on Gaza uh, in order to create that kind of level of economic hardship. They withdrew the funding to the UN Relief and Works Agency, so the majority of people in Gaza are living in absolute poverty. And then they are destroying the infrastructure. So what is the implication? The implication is you've got a brand new ready-made city with lovely homes, you know, with jobs, you know, with your own airport, you can travel about, you can have a much better life. Just give up Palestine, abandon the Palestine. And if the Palestinians were to ever accept this, um, then the rest of the Muslim world will be told, look, if the Palestinians are a lot happier now, were you happier when you were seeing pictures of them being uh, uh, being killed, uh, seeing them suffering, seeing them in misery? Now look at them. They'll be showing this as propaganda. They've got now proper schools, they've got jobs, their living standards have improved, hoping that the rest of the Muslim world will fall for the narrative that if they're happy and they're a lot better now, uh, then at least we don't have to be doing our charity car washes and cake sales and other stuff as if uh, any of those were going to rebuild Gaza anyway. Um, so it's, so that's the, that's the most dangerous element of it. They're actually also doing that in, uh, I, was reading, I was watching a, a report in East Jerusalem, how in the area where the, the Palestinians live, the situation is so bad, just, you know, uh, water, you know, employment, you know, sewage is so bad that people have to move out but the reality is is you know if you think about the the situation we've got to because in the past when they wanted to when the americans wanted to settle the palestinian issue it was almost the fact that they have to come um at the negotiation table right 
But the way we see the situation now, especially after the you know, so-called blessed Arab Springs, is that what we see is that the, the militaries in that area have been decimated. You know, any threat that there would be in that, in that you know, close, close pr- uh, proximity to Israel you know, has sort of been nullified. So now, you know, because of the, the situation, now they are actually just going to go ahead and enforce this deal, whether they like it or not. When in fact, maybe if you think about before, where there's the Oslo or the deal before, if it was even at that time it was humiliating, but now they've gone to the next level of humiliate, humiliating the the Palestinians and i.e. the Ummah, because what's been offered, I mean, as you mentioned before, that even for their security, they have to pay the Israelis. You know, the threat is the Israelis. You know, um, and and even the fact that in Gaza, in this area where this in this in, industrial area where there will be this airport and factories, the fact that the Palestinians cannot stay there. Um, so, you know, the, the the situation we see, and I think Maz mentioned about the Arab Spring, uh, no, sorry, the Greater Middle East Initiative, and we see that this is uh, in line with the Greater Middle East Initiative, which is to spread democracy in the Muslim land, secularism. And one of the issues that's always been um, a thorn is the, is the issue of Palestine, because until this issue is resolved, that, that, that area, there can be no peace, i.e. the way the Americans want it. But what they're doing now, and the, the way the, the, the Ummah is in regards to the way these uh, the puppets are, the treacherous puppets, now they're openly shaking hands with the Israelis. As uh, Jared Kushner said, people will be upset about it, but the reality is, is they'll just get used to it. So this is the situation uh, we see now. So Yeah, with regards to... With regards to the Greater Middle East Initiative, uh, the key element of the Greater Middle East Initiative, which is relevant for, for uh, this uh, situation, was uh, to make Israel, to integrate Israel politically and economically into the region and normalize relations with it. So it's seen in the, in the Muslim world, in the Middle East, as a, as a normal, you know, state, not as an alien state. At the moment, it's, it's seen as an alien state. You know, it's it's not seen as a a natural local entity, even though the other states are not even natural because they were created by the you know British. So even they're you know kind of semi-alien. Uh, Israel totally alien because it's a foreign entity which is imposed upon that, and hence the reason why even children will ask you if Israel's in the Middle East, why does it take part in the Eurovision Song Contest or in the Euro football competition? Because that's where it belongs. It doesn't belong in that region. But going back to the issue of normalizing Israel and making it acceptable uh, in the region, um, the, one of the uh, issues of the Great Middle East Initiative was to exactly achieve that. And we see that there's been a huge acceleration of that recently. So we see how uh, the Saudis are openly uh, supporting Israel, Saudi government scholars, have been attacking Palestinians and saying it, it's their provocation which is leading the Israelis to attack them. So in the Great March of Return, when the Palestinians have been protesting and then been shot at by Israelis, can you imagine the Saudi government scholars uh, saying it's a Palestinian's fault because they are the ones who are encroaching on Israeli land? So by even saying that, they've recognized Israel. So now you see that uh, last year, you know, flights from Tel Aviv to India, Saudi opened up airspace to them, normalization. You find now recently the Muslim World League chief saying that they're going to invite an Israeli delegation to Saudi. So you see they're trying to normalize with the people. 
uh, Netanyahu's visit to Oman to meet the uh, the ruler of um, Oman uh, as part of that normalization process. In that same week, uh, Mark Regev, um, he uh, another Israeli uh, top government official, he was visiting the UAE. You know, uh, uh, um, uh, on a visit to there, um, Bahrain recently had a, a fair to which the Israelis were invited. Uh, an Israeli official delegation. Uh, it didn't go ahead because there was a lot of protest uh, against that uh, locally. Uh, we find even here in the UK, we find these treacherous uh, imams who were sponsored by the Israeli embassy and given a tour of Palestine. Um, and then the Israeli embassy was boasting about it and, and using it as propaganda to show how they were facilitating and playing their role in uh, normalizing relations with Israel. So these people like Musharraf Hussein from Nottingham and his delegation who, you know, who, who went, you know, hosted by Israel. It's all part of the normalization process. And then you'll find that other scholars who are linked, you know, to these will be giving their fatwas to, to say, yeah, we can accept a two state solution. Yeah. And I wonder what they will have to say yeah, about, about the one state solution, but I can guess what they will say. But look at the Palestinians living yeah. better now. And they'll say the blood of a Muslim is sacred. So the fact they're not being killed and they are not being oppressed, we should surrender Palestine altogether. So the Greater Middle East Initiative um, was, uh, uh, one of its key policies was to integrate Israel economically and politically into the region. And we can see major efforts already underway of that. And just to, on a, a further point to that, there's a massive, we spoke about this previously, there's a massive uh, project in which the Saudis are planning to build a mega city um, in Tabuk, on the coast of Tabuk, uh, across from the Sinai, uh, from Sharm el-Sheikh. And they want to build a connecting bridge between the two, in which Israeli cooperation will be required, and Israeli involvement no, long, no doubt will be required. And a lot of the jobs that will be created in the construction of this city, and it's in a $500 billion project, who's going to be working in these jobs? The Palestinians who've just been resettled in Sinai, perhaps, you know, some Egyptians, you know, to make them feel like it's all working in our favor, working side by side with Israelis who will be um, also working in the city. So you can see the, the efforts which are underway on all fronts are, um, um, are, are really uh, progressing um, or they're attempting to progress them unless the Muslims wake up to this and realize and put a stop to it. So, I mean... That's what I was going to ask next really because even though the, what you just uh, sort of explained there shows that it's progressing but the reality is on the ground, the normal Muslim, um, I don't think in my opinion would ever accept this. Uh, they already know that these rulers themselves are treacherous anyway. Um, so inshallah their plans will fail. But in regards to what we're talking about, what should we be doing as Muslims to uh, try to stop uh, put, to put a stop to the deal of the century what should we be doing to be fair we have to be very clear with the fact that you mentioned the point earlier on as well is whilst we've been talking about this for the best part of a year and yes it's in in the public domain in terms of in the media most muslims are not speaking about this or at least I've not come across many Muslims who are speaking about it. It needs to be clarified to them so that everybody is aware what what kind of plan this is and I think, like you said, at face value, every Muslim will look at that and go, this is not something that, that is acceptable. 
Um, and furthermore, I think it comes back to even something we mentioned earlier on about you know this concept of looking at Israel and thinking they're some kind of invincible entity. But it's very, it's actually, if you do any kind of research, we'll recognize that Israel as an entity is actually very, very weak. It's being sustained because of its strategic position in the region. It's being sustained by America and, and the Arab nations because... The it, Arab regimes. Ar- Arab regimes in order to satisfy the plans in, in that area. And you can look at, you can take some facts quite simply in that, um, first of all, something like 95% of energy that Israel needs has to come from outside of Israel. So it's dependent on those um, nations around them. Um, Even to the extent that, you know, their labor force and stuff, they're struggling with labor force, so they need people, a lot of immigrants to come in. 3.3 million. Exactly. So they need 3.3 million people to come in and help. No, that that is their labor force. Is that their labor force? So they're struggling for that. On top of that, they, in terms of, they have a a reliance on, on imports from a majority of their goods because being only a population of something like eight or nine million they they have to prioritize certain industries in terms of trade so actually they're it's not prevalent in all industries so actually they're quite limited in their you know in their transactions a lot of their exports are all in electronic goods okay so actually you know these kind of like the bds movement and things like that they you know, it might have a tiny effect, but actually it's the kind of the trade bit at national levels in terms of international trade that's been done, which will really affect them. Not, you know, the common person not buying some Israeli goods, for instance, but actually if these Arab nations were to stop trading, then that would have a more of an impact. But it's those same Arab nations that are militarily protecting this this state by not going and and doing what is necessary. So Muslims need to be aware of these facts and not be frightened by the fact that, you know, this entity should not be existing within the Muslim lands. Yeah, and and, uh, just to, uh, before I add to that, actually, I want to say the the deal of the century also included incorporating the Golan Heights into Israel and turning it into a a strategic um, defense point for Israel from the north. But not only that, we know that the Golan Heights is very rich in, in oil, oil uh, 350 meters deep. Um, oh, and yeah. uh, the uh, Americans just recently recognized, and we actually uh, mentioned this last year. The, uh, Sorry, go on. And America, not only has America recognized uh, the Golan Heights as being part of Israel recently, they've already started some exploration Um, uh, in this region uh, between American and Israeli companies in order to benefit from it. So when we were talking about the deal of the century, they keep talking about it, it's going to be unveiled, it's going to be leaked, it's actually already being implemented and it's being forced upon it. So when there is an announcement, it'll just be a matter of formality um, because it already would have been imposed by then. So that was something which I wanted to add on before we... Yeah, and what that. that links to is the fact that actually within Israel, there is no oil. There is, they don't have oil, exactly. So for them to be able to annex with the gold, you know, to have gold on heights and all the oil that is there, that further solidifies that. So for Muslims, we need to recognize that. If we recognize that this, these are the things that actually make them weak and the only reason they are sustained is because of foreign influences, then perhaps we will be more forthcoming in accounting those rulers, in accounting the people who are keeping them in place, be it the scholars or the rulers themselves. Yeah, and another important point, which I think is um, 
critical to mention that as part of the process of normalizing relations with Israel in the Arab world and integrating Israel into the Middle East, the, um, the, th the Iranian threat has been deliberately brought to the fore. So America created a situation where <clears throat> America has been peddling the narrative that Iran is the big threat to the Arab Sunni world. And America has been escalating this um, even more recently. And, and, and the Iranian regime was quite happy to cooperate with the Americans in playing its role in facilitating the invasions of Afghanistan and, in, and Iraq and all the American projects in the region in order to bolster its own position. But through bolstering its own position, America has uh, America's plan was to use that to scare the Gulf Arabs into going into an alliance with Israel. So in recent years, the, the Sunni-Shia civil war that America created after the Iraq invasion of 2003, they tried to peddle to the Muslims that the Shia were, or to the Sunnis, that the Shia were a bigger enemy than Israel. Right, yeah. <clears throat> they were the real threat. So all the events which are taking place right now, so with all these alleged sabotage of Gulf oil tankers uh, in the Gulf, this Houthi uh, attack within Saudi Arabia via a, a drone. Um, all of this is, and then the Americans vacating their staff from Iraq to create this war atmosphere. All of this is designed to um, push the Arab regimes into a closer alliance with Israel because this new Sunni Arab NATO type block, which they're in the process of creating or announcing, Israel is meant to be a member of that, a part of it. But how do you justify Israel being a normal member of the Sunni bloc? Uh, because they both have a common enemy. And if you look at, at all UN conferences, when there's an annual UN conference, when the Israeli Prime Minister comes on, he talks about the threat in the region coming from Iran. And when the Saudi uh, rulers come on and representatives and the UAE, who do they talk about as being the main threat in the region? Iran yeah. as well. So you can see they've been preparing this yeah. military alliance. And even in Syria, the fact that the Israelis have been carrying out strikes now and again against the Assad regime under the pretext that this is a way by which Iran is getting, an, getting a foothold in Syria. Yeah. It's all reinforcing that Israel is actually fighting on the same side as the Arabs against Iran, even in Syria. So the recent events should be, you know, uh, interpreted and looked at uh, in that way. It's all part of normalizing Israel into the Arab world in particular, especially as America is planning a long-term Cold War and potentially massive, devastating, devastating, destructive war between the Sunni Shia, not just in Syria, but outside, not and in Iraq, but outside to engulf the, the entire uh, Gulf region if they could in future. I think Saudi is definitely taking a, uh, you know, a key role in this because if you look on Saudi TV, uh, journalists coming on, uh, praying for pray, praying for Israel, uh, some coming on saying that Iran is our biggest enemy. We need to unite with the what was the uh, Israelis have done to us, um, you know, uh, and this is actually because these people wouldn't be given the the airtime before, but now these this is the voice you're hearing, this is it and. Uh, subhanallah you know we need to make sure that uh, this is exposed and i think as muslims it's you know obligatory upon us to be exposing these plans because you know in fact it, they are in plain sight you know we talk about the deal of the century this is actually being executed uh, before our eyes and, and the three biggest 
monarchic regimes which are involved in this is Sisi's regime, Mohammed bin Salman of Saudi Arabia, and Mohammed bin Zayed of the UAE. These three regimes are key players in implementing not only the deal of the century, but in implementing America's overall war on Islam in the most hostile ways possible, which then leads to the question that those people and those organizations that are linked and funded to these regimes directly or indirectly, and most of them are directly actually, like the Taba Foundation in, uh, in uh, Abu Dhabi, the, the Forum for, um, uh, for Peace in Muslim Societies, also in Abu Dhabi, which is sponsored by these, and recent State Department reports show that the US is directly in touch and in contact with these organizations, and they're headed by, by people like Abdullah ibn um, Bayer and uh, Habib Jifri, uh, which have, which they are trying to normally and try to spread their influence right down to the Muslim uh, communities, right down to the street level. So, what message are these? Or are they trying to give out? Especially knowing that these three regimes are the most hostile to Islam, to Islamic movements, and they are the most pro-Israeli. Um, so it's, it's something which um, really makes it very clear, of. isn't it? Yeah. So in terms of yes, yeah, so you know, what should Muslims be doing? Well, first we need to recognise what is the actual problem. We lost Palestine because we lost the Islamic State, and Britain established uh, Israel in order to keep Muslims distracted from wanting to re-establish the Islamic State. The recent crises actually have reinforced all of these uh, aspects because the Muslims have been preoccupied with trying to carry out humanitarian work in order or, or boycotts or other kind of activities um, without really recognizing what the real root cause is. So we need to make Muslims aware that the, what the root cause is. We lost Palestine when we lost the Islamic State. And realistically, we're not going to regain Palestine under the current regimes unless some military battalions took it upon themselves to liberate uh, Palestine. Um, it's going to be under the command of the Islamic leadership when the Islamic State is restored. So what should the Muslims be doing? We should be exposing what the plan, what the deal of the century is, as Rash mentioned. Everyone should and, and, and resist it. And, uh, and then mobilizing the Muslims to understand why is America so keen on cementing the fate of the Middle East with the deal of the century? It's to permanently eradicate the thought uh, in the minds of the Muslims which might help them link why Palestine is in the situation it is. It is because simply because we lost the Islamic State. Therefore, it follows we're going to regain Palestine when the Islamic State is established. I and mean, if we look at it historically, when uh, the, Palestine came under Muslim rule under Umar ibn al-Khattab when the Islamic State existed. When, we did, when it was temporarily occupied by the Crusaders, it was liberated because the Islamic State existed and its armed forces were mobilized to liberate Palestine. We lost the Islamic State, we lost Palestine. So make the link. So the next step to regain Palestine in its entirety is the restoration of the Islamic State because the loss of Palestine is a symptom of this. People will say, yeah, but that's long-term, it's in the future. It's not. It's only as near as the Muslims will make it happen. It's a physical and practical step required by all Muslims to at least start calling for it. When people say, okay, 
we can put money in a bucket and we can sponsor, you know, uh, go for a sponsored bike ride or mountain climb or whatever else they want to satisfy themselves with doing. But in reality, how many years have gone by since the Muslims have been carrying out these activities? And here we are now where we're not even looking at a two-state solution. You're looking at a one-state solution in which the Palestinians are resettled and Israel and the Jews take pretty much everything, you know. So... Let's assume it's a 10-year project, a 15-year project, a 20-year project to create this opinion amongst the Muslims, to mobilize the masses towards establish, ex- accepting nothing else, because Allah requires from them nothing else except the Islamic solution, which is liberation via the Islamic armed forces, um, i.e. jihad by the armed forces, which can only occur uh, when we have an Islamic leadership which sends them. Uh, into this uh, uh, mission so that will inevitably happen because of the fact that the muslims on are on board on mass but if the muslims keep forever carrying out diversionary activities then when will they ever be on board for this solution so the muslims need to be on board for this solution and that starts with voicing the solution articulating the solution embracing the solution making other people accept what is a solution because those are the prerequisite steps for the solution to actually occur. The more that is delayed, the more the solution is delayed. And we will be here in another 50 years time. Not us, but you know, people will come after us. We'll be sitting here having the same discussion saying, 50 years ago, 30 years ago, what were the Muslims doing? Why were they wasting their time with their boycott movements and their sponsored mountain climbs and their cake sales? And they'll be thinking, how ridiculous. Can you imagine how history will judge this generation that while Palestine is not only being occupied, but being totally surrendered through a deal of the century, Muslims are going on mountain climbs and baking cakes. It's going to be an embarrassment, you know, for in history to go down that way. So the Muslims, they need to start working for this solution and they start visualizing. Yes, it might not happen this year, next year, the year after. But unless you start taking steps towards it, it's never going to happen. And we're going to be having the same discussion or our um, successors will be having the same uh, future generations will be having the same discussion in another 10 or 20 years time. Subhanallah. Um, you know, I can't think really add to that. No. can't really add to that, subhanAllah. And uh, that is uh, how important this issue is. You know, uh, we don't want to be remembered as that generation. That uh, you know, in in the future, inshallah, when the state's back, and the the Muslims are going to be, um, the scholars are going to be speaking about the the different generations of the Ummah, and they'll speak about the great generations, and they'll come to our era, and they'll say these were the dark days, the dark ages, um, but un- until we don't actually you know have this motivation in ourselves, um, then nothing's going to happen. And as Mas said, you know, at the end day, a lot of people they they they. They stop. They quit in the, at the first at the first hurdle. You know they are content with doing all these uh, diversionary activities when in fact they've not even given uh, the real uh, solution a, a chance. You know a second thought. You know it's like um, they've totally ignored it. In fact, they've even it could be argued that they even facilitate. They are facilitating the deal of the century because one key element of the deal of the century is to change the Palestinian struggle from a political occupation struggle to a humanitarian struggle. So the fact that now in Ramadan you can have all your channels in the evening collecting charity and shouting tuck beers as if 
you know, uh, Palestine be liberated when somebody's donating twenty pounds or thirty pounds to somewhere whatever cause. They are reinforcing what America wants. The Palestinian issue America wants people to believe is a humanitarian issue. And so all these people who are involved in these projects, or they're not acting on behalf of America and peddling America's agenda, knowingly or unknowingly, and turning it into a humanitarian issue by not addressing it from a political and occupational perspective and from an Islamic perspective of what Islam requires us to do and then carrying out the practical steps in order for that solution to materialize? Are they not contributing towards it? Are they not facilitating and assisting it? Well, they say if you're not part of the solution, you're part of the problem. You're part of the problem. The thing is, you'd, you'd think that Muslims by now, and I think people are starting to recognize that, look, charity it's not working, it's not a solution for these problems. Lobbying, how can we lobby the same countries that helped in setting up this entity? You know, BDS and the, these kind of things. Look at the figures, look at what, if, the, if it affects them even slightly, America come along and increase the foreign aid. All of these other peripheral solutions, or as we've been term, you know, convinced to think them, think of them as solutions, have been done for the last 50, 100 years now. And what has it achieved? It hasn't achieved anything. So surely it's time now to put those aside and work for the actual solution. But also something which to add is is the fact that none of these are the Islamic solutions. So we can talk about you know uh, these solutions have not worked in fifty years, but the issue is is that what does Allah Subhanahu wa Taala and you know uh, the Messenger of Allah what, what does what what do they command that we do in this situation? You know Salahadina Layubi, what did he do? You know, the people before them, what did they do? They referred back to the Quran and the Sunnah. You know, and the reality is today when people are imitating the Qufar, in reality that's what they're doing. You know, having these uh, uh, charity shows and stuff like this, like Comic Relief used to be, you know, making takbir like, you know, we, we've conquered the world. The reality is, is that the issue is, is we're using our own minds and what do we think is the solution. But the reality is, what does Allah say what we need to do? And that's a very, that's a very good point because a lot, a lot of the times... People will um, detract from this discussion because they'll say, well, what are we supposed to do? Mm. And it's always a wrong question. The real question is, what does Allah require us to do? And that's a very good point you made there. So, inshallah, I don't think there's anything else you guys want to add. Um, we'll, uh, you know, bring it to a close now. I think as you've, uh, as the, the, the viewers and uh, uh, those listening, you'll see, inshallah, Tala, this is a very important topic. And it is our duty out there, as it is, as what we do here on Voice of the Ummah, to get all this information to you, which is the plots and the plans of the Kuffar. And in fact, you cannot ignore this, and we cannot ignore this, and this is something which we need to start acting upon now. And with this being in the blessed month of Ramadan, there's, better, there's no better time to start. So inshallah ta'ala, I pray that you benefit from this. Any, mis- any uh, good we've said is from Allah. Any mistakes we've made are from ourselves. And Jazakallah for watching and listening. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu.